Hello everyone and welcome back. I hope you had a nice break during this Christmas period. It has been a tough 2020 and I really really hope that 2021 is going to be a great year and it's not going to be a 2020 part 2. But today to start very very well uh, the uh, continuation of second season of the Cybersecurity and Cloud podcast. We welcome back a friend. You might have uh, seen me and her doing podcasts together. Um, CN John is uh, the SVP of uh, Microsoft and advisory service for EMEA. And we talk a little bit about history. We talk a little bit about uh, regulation GDPR. And then we do a walk back on the good old days of firewalls and um we explore a number of topics, but it's a really nice and relaxed conversation. So I really hope you enjoy it. And I really wish you the best uh, for this start of 2021. Um, and I hope we can all be together and we can all help each other as a good, if you want, idea to make the world a little bit better. So I hope you enjoy. This is Francesco, your host. Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, where we hear the stories of information security professionals. This podcast explores different angles, out-of-the-box ideas, and the human element of cybersecurity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP so we can continue to bring on amazing guests. You can watch videos of the interviews at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. Today, we have a representative from Microsoft joining in, Sien, that is the Microsoft APJ Director uh, for Cybersecurity and Advisory Service, or as a little bit shorter, maybe anything cyber outside the Americas, <laughs> as we were discussing. Sian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Do you want to give our audience a little bit more background about yourself other these uh, cryptic acronyms? <laughs> yes, uh, yes uh, I, I'm Sean John. I've, I've worked in cybersecurity for what, over 20 years now, before it was called cybersecurity, I think, like many in the industry. Uh, and literally, uh, what my team do is we're effectively chief security advisors who, who go out and talk to uh, senior individuals, our customers, about what their cybersecurity strategy is, what they're trying to achieve, and, and how we can help them. So, like I say, uh, we have the acronyms for the different regions, but it effectively equates to anything that's not uh, America's uh, might cover. Fantastic. And because you're exposed to so many individuals and so many people that are trying to strategize and maybe trying to implement cybersecurity, Microsoft or non Microsoft, can you give, you're probably in a very good position to give a perspective about uh, cyber and where the industry is at the moment, cloud or non cloud, up to you? Yeah, so I think we're in a major area of flux and we have been probably for the last five or 10 years, uh, ideas particularly. Uh, I think. Uh, COVID-19 has probably accelerated that to a large level in terms of accelerating digital transformation. And, and that really means that people have to reevaluate some of the ways they do cybersecurity. So uh, a lot of the customers we deal with, they have got very mature control frameworks, which work really well for the traditional um, IT model. 
but as, as organizations are digitally transforming, that's, that's not just cloud, that's using cloud, that's working remotely, that's doing more machine learning and AI, you really need to evolve the control frameworks, evolve what you do to make sure that you're still managing the risks in an appropriate fashion for the new way that everything's configured. Fantastic. And that's probably one of my favorite subjects at all, trying to get into the cloud and trying to use probably the cloud in the best way you can. But you've been, you've been with Microsoft for quite a while now. And have you seen, how have you seen Microsoft transforming over the years? Yeah. So I, I joined Microsoft three years ago. And, and part of the reason that I joined is I, I used to work at, uh, at Symantec, a fairly well-known vendor mm -hmm. for 12 years before that. Uh, and I joined Microsoft because you could just see that they were beginning to take, and I know they've been in security for years, but it was beginning to be seen as a, a really core and it, it, essential part of what they did. And in the three years I've been here, that's just gone for strength to strength and more. So it, it's a it's a strategic priority for the company. And it's about mm -hmm. how we actually, uh, it's effectively, so digital transformation is a major focus for Microsoft, how we help customers to digitally transform and then actually how we help them to do that in a secure fashion is a real area of focus. And it's, you know, from Satya Nadella down, um, really uh, important area in order to focus. It's, it's just every year we put more and more into it and uh, you'll see some developments coming in the next few weeks that re reflect that's, that that's even more so. And, you know, I came from a, a mature security vendor with a really good attitude to, uh, to security. But when I joined Microsoft three years ago, what struck me was that the it's just embedded in the culture in a way that it wasn't. Uh, and related to that, the other thing is everyone always thinks that Microsoft just secures Microsoft. It's now actually about, <laughs> it's now actually about security across, you know, it's, it's, we're not in the Steve Ballmer any year anymore. It's not, the answer isn't always Windows. It's about a cross platform, you know, Microsoft and other clouds, Microsoft and other operating systems, uh, and just about helping organizations to, you know, from a strategic level, secure what they do. Yeah, amazing. And and I think I've seen the transformation and uh, reputation of Microsoft in, in my mind went up and up and up since as you since Windows 10, when they literally changed the gear and the sh and shifted into this new mindset where let's focus on our clients, let's focus on how to deliver uh, and how to make the transformation, the digital transformation as smooth as possible. And that has always been a little bit my uh, key take and in all the conversation I always tease AWS of well Microsoft is almost off the shelf security because you can pick a product and it's super easy and I think that's one of the most powerful thing about Azure that uh, it's, it's very if you want suited for SMB or, or small and medium business all the way to the enterprise because it's almost seamless integration with what the client does have already embedded what do you think? Yeah absolutely one thing that you know if you talk about in IT we've been saying trying to make things more focused on productivity and make the technology easier for people to use and easier for them to relate to. In security, that hasn't necessarily been what's happened, both either from the admin side or from the user or the developer side. To make people jump through so many hoops in order to be secure, and guess what? They then find a way around that doesn't involve using those hoops. So really for us, the focus is how can we build security into that productivity experience? How can we make it easy to use there is some complexity when you get into an advanced complex environment but if you're just trying to do some simple elements how do we make it engaging yeah and that's that, like i say it's about interfacing and working and in the azure world um that's not just about you know windows i think over 50 percent of the workloads on on azure are actually unix so uh, effectively it's about making sure that you have a consistent level of experience and not just 
security, but governance, reporting, compliance, control. And it's the sort of thing I think is the differentiator between ourselves and some of the other cloud providers. It's, it's just that we're slightly ahead of them. It doesn't mean that they're not going there as well. It's just that we tend to be slightly ahead of them in, in the loop of, of thinking around governance, compliance, and risk management across clouds. I agree. And, and, and I think Azure Security Center has put a really high bar in the simplicity on how to embed and uh, with the release, I think a couple of years ago, uh, with the Sys compliance and all the rest of rule set compliance, it really puts the, the compliance uh, rule sets to another level and everybody else is catching up to that, to that level. So it's one of my favorite products uh, together with that engine, of course. <laughs> the challenge now is to get customers to engage with it and use it and get the best value from it, really. So. That's, actually, that's actually a very good point because how do you get client to go from traditional mindset but i want to i want to really fit my foul in there to well you might need to rethink your environment or actually how, how is your traditional approach to, do, to to traditional client if you want so yeah, we have questions from clients like can i put a hardware network ips into the azure data center <laughs> no <laughs> yeah how a, a, a very common question we have is you know how many fire fire extinguishers do you have in the data center so traditional data center compliance audit. And we'll get asked that mm -hmm. question again and again and again, and not necessarily, you know, how do I do identity? How do I do governance controls about the shared responsibility model? Mm -hmm. And so what we see is, and I suppose it's one of those things that we're very big in Microsoft on effectively the growth mindset. And, and you see some customers we work with that have really got that growth mindset that looking at how they can evolve what they do, how they can really learn and develop into the future. And then, you have others that are maybe slightly more fixed mindset and it's a case of we understand our existing control framework we understand what it does we've evolved it over time we need whatever we do in the cloud to plug into the existing control framework or your existing security products which means everything has to route through on-premise everything has to route through you know network-based controls you know ssl inspection all these sort of things that were absolutely essential you know seven or eight years ago effectively now can can put a barrier to productivity in in the it organization so you you know you this is the, the the thing we're all familiar with with the plethora of agents on the endpoints but also the level of inspection and network level the forcing everything back through a vpn which all affects performance and and all these things you know for many customers COVID 19 brought that home because instead of having two or 3,000 users on a VPN at once, you suddenly, a larger organization went to 60, 70,000. And I think for our, um, our Office 365 networking team, I think they spent a solid four weeks advising customers on how to do split tunneling. So they weren't sending all their Office 365 traffic through the VPN alongside all the production traffic, alongside all the admin traffic. So, I mean, there are cases when you do need to run things through on-premise network. It's not get rid of it, but it's work out when it's appropriate due to when it's not and that's that's the biggest challenge is you know, for, for quite fairly obvious reasons people are quite risk averse uh, and so you've got you've got a way of controlling the environment which either has or hasn't been successful but because it was all within that that hard eggshell you could almost get an illusion of, of security it's how we get people to to evolve to work out when that traditional network model is successful and when it's not i mean the biggest example for me is people going from exchange or on-premise to Office 365 for their email. And on-premise, they don't scan email, they don't do anything like that. The minute it goes to Office 365, they consider it outside the perimeter, and then they want to scan every single packet, which is effectively internal email, rather than putting the control at the 
order of Office 365. And you know, that control doesn't just mean Microsoft tool sets, because most of the, the third-party security products that sit on-premise do have a ability to plug into Office 365 in and out. So obviously we want you to go with Office 365, but when we say put your control at the perimeter of Office and consider that to be part of your perimeter, it doesn't mean you have to buy Microsoft capability. It means just change your mindset to think that your Office 365 tenant is your is in your perimeter logically, and then how do you put controls to stop data leaving that? Rather than how do I what, how do I scan every single bit of traffic going back and forth between my my internal network on premises and what is effectively my internal Office yeah although it seems external it's effectively your Office 365 tenant. So you're basically scanning emails back and forth between individuals internally within your organization. Yeah. And I like how you distinguish and, and how you mentioned the fact that as soon as it goes out, it's seen as external, it's not seen as part of your network. It's seen like potentially somebody can be hacking or they don't consider probably if they target Microsoft, other people would be compromised uh, together with me. So the level of security that a cloud provider might offer of course, it's everybody's responsibility to pick and choose effectively the control because it's not the responsibility of the cloud provider to secure every time, everything, including customer data. There is a number of control, but they make it as easy as possible effectively to pick and choose the control. Yeah, that's the biggest thing is getting people to really internalize the shared responsibility model. So you get people might understand it, but then you either get the, we don't trust the cloud provider at all to do anything, which is like, I want to put a network IPS into effectively a large scale data center and the worst thing we do is call it a data center because it means people think of it as the data centers they're familiar with yeah. and there's a whole different level of scale in a cloud data center so you've got that level the end or the other end where people just go well i've put it in the cloud so therefore microsoft it's google secure. amazon they're going to do it all and that's not the case yes yeah, so. yeah it's, it's it's the ultimate question is the cloud secure it's like it depends <laughs> what do you want to do with it <laughs> That's the standard cybersecurity answer to everything, isn't it? It depends. Yeah, yeah I guess. It, or, or there is a policy for it, but it depends which <laughs> side of if you're in GRC or if you're actually doing security. <laughs> Sorry, my beef with compliance people. <laughs> no, but compliance is really, really important. It's just compliance is not security, but we need to be compliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, well, it, it's actually, I'm a big believer in governance and compliance, but not if you reduce it to a checklist. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm one of the biggest fans of the GDPR because it doesn't have a checklist. And everyone goes, but what does good look like? Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And GDPR is actually one of the few regulation. I, I like PCI DSS because we're really taking things, either giving tape to the regulators so they, they could be aggressive and, and the regulation was taken seriously, or you could take it a notch down and, and produce it to technical because the conversation that I tend to have with technical people is, Okay, so what do I do with it? So how do I translate it into something doable or how do I translate? And actually on, on that point, how do you how much do you deal with the regulators? Because it being in banking environment, the I, I spent an awful amount of time dealing with regulators. And sometimes they're not cloud is not uh, up there for them maybe not in us and uh in europe but in asia pacific I, I find it over and over and over especially in indonesia in countries where the regulators are maybe uh not that not to that level of of uh, speed at the rest of yeah. commercial us 
it, it's an evolving journey with with all regulators they're all in different stages and where they are and and if you look at where a lot of the regulators are now versus a few years ago they've, they've really moved so you look at the european union the european banking authority you know they've really taken a very mature view of, of the cloud and, and the sort of risk that people need people to manage um, so, you know, at Microsoft, we, we, we try and comply with as many global regulations as we can in our cloud. I think we're, we're very proud of the fact that Azure has more certifications than any other uh, any other cloud provider. On the Office 365 side, we're much more um, more selective in terms of which are the ones that actually make a difference to people that are trying to use it from a business perspective, because there are things you can do around information protection and compliance to, to, to come around it. And that becomes much more customer specific than us as the, as the cloud. But in Azure, it's like as many as we can get that, that makes sense. And then obviously we work directly with regulators uh, where we can to make sure that A, we understand what they're looking for us and B, they understand the capability we do. And I'd love to make that a competitive advantage, but I don't think we're alone. I think most of the cloud providers uh, do that. Uh, so, uh, because it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a journey. And if you actually look at, uh, for most of the regulators, if you get into financial services, you're right, Asia Pacific is a little bit further behind, but even there, everyone's looking at how they get to understand the cloud better and how they, they get to adopt it. And for us, the challenge is how do we work better with those regulators, but also how do we work better with the auditors in the financial mm -hmm. services? So when a regulation is updated, quite often a regulator might go, Europe being an example of, you know, the EBA updates their reg regulations to be more aware of cloud, but that hits the bank and gets interpreted in the way to fit this is why I go back to the control framework to fit the existing control framework. And then, you know, the, the audit answer is uh, I, I'll lose my banking license. So I won't be able to do things. Sure. And it's, 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 so it's, it's about working with regulators, but also working with customers to discuss their interpretation of that regulation. And, and sometimes sync, encouraging them to sync back up with the regulator to ensure they evolve. I mean, particularly as I know in the UK and in Europe, they're very much principles-based regulators. I know some of the individual countries in, in Europe are a little bit more condition-based, but you know the, the, the core is to, to actually say, what are the principles we needed to follow and how do we make sure you work? And I think that's why I think the GDPR is a, a good example of that. Uh, you know, PCI-DSS was a great piece of regulation to do with the fact that you had, all this small, yeah, you had all these small, small, it's not really even regulation, is it? It's, it's basically the credit card providers being exposed to the risk of all these people issuing credit cards or taking credit cards that did absolutely nothing to secure. So they create the checklist mm -hmm. and you get the people that take that checklist and work with it holistically as part of their overall risk. And you get the ones that just deal with the checklist and still get breached because they haven't actually mitigated the risk. They just tick the box. That's why there's no problem with having a checklist if that feeds into your rider risk management rather than just focusing on have I ticked the box to get myself the certificate. It's like, what was that box designed to do? Have I mitigated that risk? Sometimes sometime organizations tend to see uh, regulation just as a checklist or as a blocker, while uh, cybersecurity need a strong leader to say, okay, let's take the exercise of regulators. But it was funny enough that with a few maybe uh, engineers and developers, they begged me not to take away regulation or not to take away yeah. those things, because it was the only time where they could have proper conversation with their product owner or with their management team to say security is important and look there is backed by regulation so regulation is actually a fear factor or adds a weight to uh, effectively the security problem so sometimes it's it's a good driver especially for cybersecurity leader they could use the regulator heavy weight to drive an agenda and i think that's when regulation becomes really a driver
yeah, it's like eternal challenge of cybersecurity. How do I prove return on investment? And the regulation can quite often prove that, you know, you spend this money to, to mitigate a possible fine. And that's why I'm sure there will be some fines under the GDPR, but to me, the, the size of those fines is really more to make it, you know, the cost benefit analysis of actually implementing security controls much more valuable than, than not, and not have somebody make the decision, I'm just going to pay the fine. <laughs> it could be, it could as well be, is, is, is risk management, but GDPR fine tend to be heavy. <laughs> yes, but then I suppose they're heavy if you've been shown to not, as long as the, as long as the assessment is fair in terms of how well was the organization trying to manage risk and were they trying to do the best thing? Uh, and if they weren't, and if they were cutting corners, then they, that, that, that's the fine to say for everyone else, make sure you're doing it properly and you're investing the appropriate level of risk. Yeah. Obviously, it's, you have to be careful not to invest more than the actual thing you're trying to do is worth. Right. So, yeah. It's a risk assessment, but I, I don't think that we've seen maybe a, a wide blown out of proportion GDPR fine. Right now, everything is being kept under cover regulation and probably British Airways, EasyJet are the most recent, well, EasyJet is actually quite old and they're still discussing uh, how much the fine would effectively be. Yeah. So and it's going to take long, but the first one is going to land, it's going to be a big one, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they started off as quite big numbers in those cases, but mm -hmm. yeah, it's a case of, can you share that what you were trying to do and and the process that was followed? And I think it's fair that you have a conversation rather than just straight out say, here's a fine, and we're just going to punish you without you being able to give you know, mitigating circumstances. I agree. Otherwise, you you turn into from uh, from a regulator that tend to do security into a regulator with a heavy with a heavy fist. And I think they're taking the right approach because then people will actually take them much more seriously and will have conversation beforehand. So as soon as the breach happens they're going to be notified. And I think from recent breaches, uh, probably TravelX, that's where it went totally wrong, where the regulator wasn't aware at all, up to the point where I think a month later they were notified, even though yeah. it wasn't a straightforward breach. Yeah. Uh, and it's that case of what constitutes a breach, isn't it, really? Correct. And sometimes yeah. it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to detect a breach because it can take up to a month to actually even figure out well, what, what did happen? Is it a fault? Is it something? And in TravelX, for example, was, was, a, was a ransomware. So it was really difficult to detect if something happened. Yeah, I think that's why it's a 72 hours from becoming aware. You don't expect it to be psychic and uh, know about the breach before <laughs> you're aware of it. So. Hey, Francesco here. A very quick message from our sponsor and then we return back. This podcast is brought to you by the generosity of NSC42 Limited, your cybersecurity partner. Cybersecurity is complex and different for every organization, and you need the best tailored service to make sure your customer's data is safe and sound so you can focus on what's important, focusing on your clients and bringing the best and safest experience. NSC42 Limited can help you during your cloud transformation, cybersecurity assessment for your compliance checklist on-premise and on the cloud. Want to know more? Visit www.nsc42.co.uk to get your free quote. Do you usually discuss with your colleague down in US what is the different in trade actor that they come into place with Microsoft clients between Asia Pacific and US? Do you see a massive shift or a massive difference? 
we, we do see some regional differences and yet a lot of commonality globally, in particular when it comes to some of the sort of nation state actors that attract some of the uh, some of the things that our, our mystic team track. You, you will see a particular campaign will have a regional focus, uh, but quite often, you know, it, it comes back to, to similar methodologies and similar approaches, even if the specific actual campaign or, or attack has, has variances, which allows us to, to work out that, that campaign. But, you know, we'll see certain trends in certain areas in certain industries at certain times. So obviously for the last six months, uh, healthcare and uh, health research has been a very large target. Uh, just proving that there is no ethics in the in the criminal world, um, and and actually, ironically, financial services has been, you know, l less of a target. I'm not going to say not a target, less of a target in the last four to six months. And then we'll see campaigns around, you know, going after sporting organisations, certain tactics. And so we do see regional variances. And we, we out of our digital crimes unit, we do publish sort of trends uh, around that globally. And we 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 did have a we have a security intelligence report we're just evolving that to make that that more relevant and you will see variances but there's also often quite often a commonality so you'll get you know is ransomware that the focus of the day is it uh, well phishing is always and forever in in uh, in in vogue because no matter what the final approach phishing is quite often the way to get in you know identity yeah. I think identity, I always get the stat wrong, so apologies to my Microsoft colleagues if I get this wrong. I think it's 90% of all attacks that we see, you know, wow. identity globally. So, so. If, you can, if you can give your top three approach or top three cybersecurity thing to do, uh, to look at immediately as mm -hmm. soon as you listen to the podcast, go in your organization and look at those three things, what would they be? So I'll say, first of all, if you do one thing today, enable MFA. That's the. <laughs> Thank that's the, you. Because <laughs> it's like so many of the attacks that we see, it can be stopped by MFA. And, and actually, related to that, quite often what stops people enabling MFA is, is the legacy environment that they've got to deal with. You know, people are not working in a greenfield, the legacy. And, and if you need to re architect to try and reduce the, the link between the legacy and the modern working environment, try and do it. So even if it's a logical segmentation, so, you know, splitting domains or having a different you know maybe making the legacy a little bit less uh, easy to legacy. use yeah, yeah a bit more legacy uh, just so that you can then do all the modern auth and that, you know that doesn't just bring with you mfa in the microsoft world Azure ad that brings you identity protection it brings you detection of password breaches it brings you a whole load of extra threat protection uh, that you that you maybe don't get with the legacy so I know that's easy. It's, I have to say something really that sounds really simple, but it's like if people are architecting going forward, they're still saying, "Well, we've got to support the legacy." So they're almost holding back the future for the legacy. And it, yeah. I'm not saying don't support the legacy. I'm like saying work out a way you can do that that segments the two. Um, and then the final one is 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 yeah, devices. I think we our CISO talk, talks about there's three pillars to his stool of security: it's identity, device, and data. And so, you know, making sure that you've got a good selection of the device, you know what health it's in, you know where the data is, what's happening to the data. So it's moving away from DLP to information protection and then controlling what people can do based upon their identity. Which I suppose I'm talking zero trust, but without using the zero trust. Uh, no, please, let's not use zero trust because but, but yeah, I think it's the year of zero trust. Yeah, instead of just doing the buzzword, it's like 
what does that really mean? It means before you access a resource, is your identity in a good state? Is your data in a good state? And have you coming from a healthy device? That's effectively, and you don't have any standing access. I see so many people defining zero trust as effectively an evolution of traditional security. It's not. It's about that. Every time you access a resource, I check your health. And if there's something I'm not sure about. Has yeah. been around for so long. Yeah. Like device posture check, I think with Symantec was one of the first together with Cisco to release it out in the wild with Mars. And I, I used to be actually one of the reasons I joined Symantec is I, I in my consultancy days before Symantec, I was on the front line of Blaster, and uh, uh, and actually when I worked at the House of Parliament, we actually had um, we had some of the wiring cables were above the speaker's chair, so you couldn't walk to plug in a cable because if you went to plug in a cable during the day. You'd be walking across the ceiling above the, the the House of Commons chamber, so your footsteps would be echoed on the BBC as you walked across. So we, <laughs> so we, we had to flood patch, flood wire those devices, which meant that we had a challenge of you could plug into any any for, for that particular area of the palace estate. We had to have it pre-patched, which meant that we had to manage the fact that people could be able to plug into a network port. So we were almost trying to do mm. network access control and zero trust before it was a thing. To basically say, just because you've got, just because you've plugged into this port, I'm not necessarily going to let you get to anything effectively. So, because of the fact that I'm coping with a physical limitation of I can't just go and patch the cable when I need to and unpatch it, because the house sits from 3 p.m. till 2 a.m. Oh, I know it's obviously it's even gone earlier now, but at the time I worked there a long time ago, you know, any time between that you couldn't do a, a cable patch so so that, that and I, I so i ended up being the sort of knack specialist at uh, semantic for a while because of getting the business issue and yeah it's not a new issue the challenge with those early knack solutions was when it went wrong it went very wrong and it, it quite often became a, a self-imposed denial of service uh, approach if you work careful in your environments so i think where we are now where you can get on the network but being on the network doesn't necessarily mean you can access things it's probably a more resilient way of doing it which is, I suppose, yeah. zero trust is knack with resilience is maybe value. So. <laughs> it's knack on steroids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or dot one x for the for the old networkers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, dot one x was great, but every time there was a firmware upgrade on the switch, you had to read the protocol change slightly, and then you, you everything you just had to read, double check everything worked. And it was always the CEO that tried to log in at that point and couldn't. Of course. <laughs> or connect four hundred device at this, on the same port. <laughs> <laughs> or somebody misconfiguring the, the, the trunk port on a switch with dot one X and then <laughs> automatic denial <laughs> service. But actually, no, it's actually a good point because that that what give uh, if you want zero trust or or knack, maybe the a shoot in the foot because it, it made it so complicated and so easy to mess up yeah. that it was the majority of the client that I was discussing back in the day, they were saying absolutely not. With anything, I could deny your service, my whole organization, and yeah. it will take an army of network engineers to go and reconfigure the port. Yeah, and the danger is that I've seen some people with zero trust trying to overcomplicate the story again, and actually, it is to try and keep it as simple as possible because that'll make it as easy to be resilient as possible. And and actually, the core is don't trust your network is really to me the core. And if you don't trust your network, then you don't have to worry so much about controlling access to being on the network. It's about access from that network to resources, which means you, that allows you to be more resilient and flexible in the infrastructure because people are actually on the network, but you can then control True. what they can do from there. Yeah. But with or actually get rid of the network. 
<laughs> Sorry. Yeah, exactly. With COVID, do you think that we we, we got com almost completely rid of the network? So effectively, we had endpoint, VPN, and cloud or a data center somewhere. So effectively, we had forced NAC or forced zero trust. <laughs> I mean, even before COVID hit, at Microsoft, we were moving away from, we we're trying to move away from a corporate network. So you only have effectively the the resources that actually need it and move sort of general info workers like myself. I don't really need access to anything on the corporate network, so mm -hmm. don't access it unless I need to. So if I'm doing Office 365 for 95% of what I do every day or other cloud services, put the control in, so obviously for us it's conditional access, put the control in there uh, rather than, and, and then actually trying to move me to effectively I'm at a, you know, it's a Microsoft guest, but I'm actually at a, a provided guest network when I'm in the premises and that change made it easier for us to adjust to COVID-19 because we weren't relying on the VPN. We do have a VPN for specific use cases and specific requirements we need and actually sometimes that can connect through the cloud as well to give you more scale and then you keep the the on-premise environment, the, the VPN connection for that legacy workload or for that, that those things that absolutely need it. Yeah and, and then if you've taken all the the users <laughs> for what mm -hmm. I want to off your network and put them on a different network, then you've just reduced your attack surface for your your high value services that you have to Segmentation, one single sweep. And I was actually discussing with a CISO a couple of weeks ago, and they said, well, we actually push our segmentation project now during COVID because everybody was out of the office. So we could effectively segment everybody else, user land and server land, the dream of every every CISO to achieve in, in a single go. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I mean, uh, I think it's the Harvard Business Review and I've shown this a lot of people because I just found it very amusing. They had a, they had a, a cartoon that said, uh, well, who drove your digital transformation? Was it the CEO, the CIO or COVID-19? Well, actually, you know, a CAO might drive it, but COVID-19 makes it happen. Yeah. So <laughs> That's usually my say. Yeah, there's so many customers we've been working with on the digital transformation journey and have been for three, four years, and this has just accelerated that journey for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe have you seen have you seen on that digital transformation journey security being a little bit overlooked or security being on the front foot during COVID-19? I think it depends on the organization. Um, so it depends. With, yeah, I would say it depends. <laughs> and I try to say, like I said, this to, uh, diplomatically. So sometimes in digital transformation, security is not be necessarily been helping. They've been going back to that growth versus fixed mindset. Mm. They've been going, this is our control framework. You need to fit through that, which hasn't been necessarily friendly to the digital transformation. So for those, when COVID-19 hit, some very quick decisions had to happen. And sometimes that means there's a whole risk assessment process that was going on that was taking some while and that's got shortcut to say, we've got to get people working. There's a whole availability issue. And I know that happened in the first few weeks, but then over the, the last few months, it's then been going back to reevaluate those decisions and, and retrofit the technology. Mm -hmm. And I will see in some organizations, security absolutely is helping to drive digital transformation. And in others, they're they're, they're not. It's <laughs> funny that way. They're, they're uh, and, and it's, effectively, it's effectively you see, and sort of we sort of we talk about you have the market transformation of there's a new way of doing things that then creates some pressure on a business. So the business starts to digitally transform. You know whether it's online banking or online retail, whatever that might be, cloud services. Then you get IT starts to transform to deal with it to sort of reduce shadow IT. 
and then finally cybersecurity quite often happens to, has to catch up. But when when it works well, it's when you see cybersecurity acting effectively as a consultant into the business and into IT to help them to to basically do what they need to do, but manage the threat so they can maximise the opportunity. But you do still come across some professional cybersecurity professionals who go, "Over oh, my dead body, will we use cloud? I've never had a social media account in my life." You know, the, 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 if you're going to have a remote device, it has to be locked down. All these things that are security rather productivity focused and Whenever I see those organizations, you can actually, I can guarantee you that shadow IT is through the roof in those organizations. Yeah, so, because people yeah. will go around it. Yeah, yeah, you've got, you've got a lovely control framework, but you've got real visibility of, and you don't want to give up, but you don't realize that 80% of your employees are probably 90, 90% a lot of their time, not even using their corporate device. And then they're coming into the corporate world to do other things. So it's getting that balance between productivity and security. It's like we say, build security into productivity, not the other way around. Thank you. No, uh, uh, it's a very, it's a very political answer to say it depends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but actually, no. Uh, on that subject, uh, maybe on the subject a little bit on diversity. So steering away because we have effectively shortage the, of of skilled people. Um, how do you see the the diversity subject being pushed in our industry as cyber, or not pushed? And how do you see the impact effectively of COVID during the hiring process or during uh, the talent shortage? So do you see people going back to the traditional, more comfortable position or still taking a stand and saying, no, we want to keep on pushing the diversity agenda? Um, I know for, for, for us at Microsoft, the diversity agenda is front and foremost and a thing that will carry on. And obviously that's gender diversity, but also neurodiversity, uh, ethnic diversity making sure that we more reflect the world that we exist and that's that's a company direction across the board mm -hmm. uh, it's important in cybersecurity because you know a we have got that shortage of skills we have got that shortage of, of people but but also you know if you've got 90 or 85 90 percent of your industry is, is is male then you're just there's a whole untapped level of talent and there's also a certain way of thinking and a way of doing decision making that, that you're that you're you're cutting off. I mean for me, I'm very passionate about getting more people to join our profession, to work in our profession. I I I want people from all genders, all backgrounds, all, all control and but hopefully by by broadening the appeal we can get more women, more people from different um socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds to join and people that haven't maybe gone a traditional route. I mean, most people working in cybersecurity in my age did not do it when they left school because it didn't yeah. exist that it's a profession. And so we need to keep that flexibility as we mature. And I think that's where we are now maturing as a profession. So to me, it's like we do need to just pull more people into our industry and that's about broadening the appeal. Uh, some of that we can't change. There's, there's the the cultural image of somebody who works in cybersecurity is someone who wears a hoodie and sits in dark rooms and thank you yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and just sort of hacks all, the, all day and you know Mr. Robot and you know has has dubious social skills and and that, that's those sort of people are very welcome in our industry but we actually need to broaden the uh, the appeal to be you know it's okay to actually like talking to people and work in cybersecurity and, and there's a lot of social engineering yeah <laughs> social engineering talking to the board risk management um translate you know education that that i was going to talk about the security acting as a consultancy to the rest of the business that needs true skills so 
you know, there's room for there's room for people that like to crunch numbers. There's room for people that want to do machine learning and AI. There's room for people that are analysts. To, yeah, I, I do a lot of work with Cyber First here in the UK, and it's amazing how many young people. Obviously, they get excited by the hacking, so they think mm -hmm. it's all about penetration testing, and it's like it is. But you'll soon realise that there's a lot more really interesting things you can do beyond penetration testing. And I've done penetration testing; it's great, but I've always been much more of a defender-based and capture the flag type person. So I like to stop the person getting in there. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 that but it's you know it's the fact that there is that that broad breadth, and even in the technical skills, there's lots of breadth in what you can do. So I, to me, it's it's an absolute passion that we need to diversity and that does not mean bringing in more ex more women at the expense of good men good men i might bring in more good women at the expense of average or below average men but, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's actually about just broadening the pool of our industry so we can get more people here and, and working and yeah that's that to me is where we need to go as a profession really now no but thank you so much for actually taking that stand because sometimes it's um, it, it's been seen as politically incorrect to actually take that yeah. stance, but no, it's, it's really important to value individual and people. And I appreciate that you mentioned people from any kind of different background. It's just, just about a, a woman in cyber. And I have been biased because I've been a big push and supporter for women in cyber, but I think the agenda needs to change rightfully and saying diversity, anything related to diversity, because that's more inclusive for everybody. Yeah, and actually, and it is diversity and inclusion, not just getting more people in the industry, but making them feel welcome when they're here. I will say, I think cybersecurity is a very inclusive profession. A, now? A, yeah, I think it, it quite often has been, actually. I've worked, I've, I've, over the, what, 20 odd years I've worked in this profession, I've quite often been the only woman in the room. But people, mm. there are some genuinely nice people in our industry, and I've usually not felt, I felt welcome, if you know what I mean, even if you've been the only woman in the room. So if you oh, felt like great. you've been included, so yeah. Yeah. I guess that's our positive message, but if you want to leave with the uh, last positive message to to uh, ask the audience and the industry, what which one would it be? I, I think this there's never been a more exciting time to do what we do. We've never been more re relevant. Uh, so, you know, my positive message is embrace the term cybersecurity because it means people that aren't us care. Uh, and yeah, it's like, I think the next two to three years as our profession matures and we get more career progression skill sets it's going to be a really exciting time to 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 be in this industry so yeah i think it's just a great place to work amazing so thank you very much for coming on the show and showing that security is everybody's job and everybody's welcome in this industry and thank you for sharing your your broad knowledge of uh, microsoft and whatever they're doing and i really appreciate it's one of my favorite company that i i really appreciate and appreciate the change and their commitment and their stance on diversity. So thank you again for sharing this with us and thank you all our listeners to sharing this time with us. Thank you, Sean, and welcome back. Great, thank you. Thank you, stay safe. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, consider leaving us a review or sponsoring us on Patreon. It helps us bring on amazing guests and keep the podcast alive and free. Consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP and watch other episodes at www.cybercloudpodcast.com.